0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Well, you know, every year during the first of January, so often many of us will look to resolutions. We'll promise ourselves everything from trying to get more exercise, to lose weight, to perhaps... uh, be more dutiful at being involved in ministry at church, spending more time with our wife, our kids, all of these things which are certain key and important to life. But When you think about the big questions about life, one of the big questions perhaps that most of us struggle at one point or another to try to gain an answer to, and that is understanding specifically what God wants of us, through us, and in our lives. Essentially trying to understand what is his will for my life. As we enter in this new season of new beginnings here in the typical January, learning how to reach your full potential for God. Certainly no stranger to the KFAX listeners. He is the host of In Touch, heard weekday afternoons at 4 p.m. here on KFAX. And pleased to have with us today, Dr. Charles Stanley. And Pastor, great to have you on the program.
1: Well, delighted to be with you, Craig.
0: You know, we think about, again, New Year's and new beginnings and resolutions and so forth. I can't imagine any bigger question than most of us can ask ourselves. And maybe it's one that we ask not only at the beginning of of a new year, but at certain key marks in life, be it uh, when we get married, when we retire, when we find a new job, when we perhaps are going to become a parent. And that is struggling to answer this question, learn more about what God wants of us and how to fully reach our potential for God.
1: Well, what he wants above everything else in our life is a personal, intimate relationship with himself, everything else he can do. But that is something we have to yield to with him. And when you think about all the ways that he works in our life, ultimately, that's his will. And so he's willing, because that's his purpose and his will, he's willing to do whatever is necessary in our life to enable us to develop that relationship. And when that relationship is right, everything else is going to get right because the truth is every aspect of our life flows out of and is influenced and impacted by a personal relationship with Him. So when somebody says, well, I don't know the will of God for my life, you can know because if He has a will, He certainly isn't going to keep it a secret. He's willing to show us if we're willing to submit ourselves. And I think a lot of people want to know the will of God in order to consider it not to do it, and God doesn't play those kind
0: of games. You know, and it's interesting, I think about uh, so many of us that as we came to Christ, if uh, perhaps a friend or a loved one uh, shared the gospel message with us. So one of the, the four key steps to salvation, understanding that God has a plan for our life, and of course, that goes beyond simply the relationship and coming to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and walking in fellowship with Him, but then ultimately into what it is that He wants to do in us and through us. And I found it Interesting. In some of your opening remarks to this Thomas Nelson book, Reach Your Full Potential for God, Never Never Settle for Less Than His Best, you talk about the fact that God impressed upon your heart that to understand fully what God wants to do in us and through us, you have to approach this at the get go with a clean heart, a clear mind, and a balanced schedule. I have to tell you, those three items alone caught my attention.
1: Well, that's the way it is. And I woke up one morning about 3 o'clock and out of a dead sleep, and it's like the Lord said, do you want to reach your full potential for your life? And I said, well, sure. And so I thought I didn't know what was going on, but I pulled out a pad and a pen I keep on my bed. And so as I began to just be quiet and listen, the Lord just laid out all seven of those points uh, to me very clearly. And when you think about it, I, I thought, well, now, am I sure this is of God? And I looked at him again and again, and I thought, yes, because this is the way he thinks. First of all, a clean heart and a clear mind. In other words, and a balanced schedule. That is, that he has the proper time that he needs to work in our life. And if my if my heart's not if my heart's not clean, my mind is not going to really be clear, and I'm not going to operate in my life on his schedule. And when we're not operating on his schedule, we can't do our best, and we won't do our best.
0: So, so much of this really reaching our full potential in the Lord, whatever that might be. And certainly it's different for all of us. God gives and grants to each and every one of us different skills, talents, abilities, and goals. But in order to fully reach that, we really have to be walking in uh, the fullness of His fellowship then, don't we? This needs to be an intimate kind of relationship with the Lord that can't be something that's just sort of approached uh, casually.
1: Absolutely. And this is why I said in the very beginning, our personal intimate relationship with Him impacts everything. When that's right, I'm going to have a clear mind about his will for my life. I'm going to understand his schedule for my life. I'm going to have right relationships. I'm going to be willing to take risks for him. And things will fall in place. And it doesn't mean that everything is going to be easy, but it means that no matter what I face, I'm going to come through it. I'm going to come through it successfully because in order to do that, you've got to submit yourself to the will of God. And submitting yourself to the will of God isn't always easy, because I think a lot of people are afraid to do that. They think, well, I want to do the will of God, but suppose he asks me to do this, or suppose he asks me to do that. Because he's a God of love, he's only going to require us what is best for us. And my unwillingness to do what he says is because I don't trust him to love me enough to just choose the best.
0: I would imagine in your many, many years in pulpit ministry and as pastor, Uh, this question has been brought before you time and time again, this question. Well, Pastor, I just don't understand what is God's will for my life. And I would suspect then that part of this answer for a lot of people that struggle with that is the notion that they're fearful. Well, gee, you know, if I really pursue God, what if God asked me to become a missionary on the foreign mission field or or do something that I don't really feel cut out to do? Does God do things like that? I mean, is he he of the character that he's going to surprise us and, and call us to do something that we're neither inclined to do or even equipped to do?
1: There are some things he's going to do that's going to surprise us, all right, but they're coming from the perspective that that God's motivation is judgment and punishment and testing me and trying me when God's motivation is love. Now, if he wants to send somebody to the mission field, that isn't God doing something bad for them. That's God giving them an opportunity. But it always goes back to what is my attitude toward God? Do I see him as a heavenly father who loves me, who has saved me? He wants to show me His will, provide my needs, test me, try me, yes, but all of that to grow me up and become the person He wants me to be. And those periods of testing and trial are for our good.
0: And it's interesting. I've always thought the passage of Scripture where we're reminded that God will give us the desires of our heart, but in another passage that we are encouraged to to keep our mind and our heart focused on Him. And so if we put Him first in life— and he is the central. He is uh, our, our heart's desire, so to speak, uh, that as he comes to fulfill those desires in the end, this will be something that will not only give glory to his name, but also much delight to us. And I guess in the end, when we talk about determining what he wants for us and discovering and reaching our full potential for him, uh, in the end becomes not only a delight for the Lord, but a delight unto us as well.
1: And when he says, if we delight ourselves in him, I think most folks don't Realize that he must be central in that life. That if I'm delighting myself in him, then my decisions are going to be based always on this: what's pleasing to God, what is His will in this situation, what would He have me to do, not what do I want to do, and then want to make Him fit my plan.
0: But what do you say then, Pastor, to the person who says, "But Pastor Stanley, you don't understand." I'm so average. I'm plain. There's nothing really special about me. I, I don't have the ability of, of, of great oratory skills to get on the radio or up in a pulpit and proclaim the Word of God. I, I don't have a degree in anything. I'm, I'm just kind of an average Joe. Um, how could God ever possibly use me? I
1: think many people have asked that question. Probably everybody who's ever accomplished anything has asked that at some point. But the issue is not comparing ourselves with others, we think about what we have and don't have, then we're comparing ourselves with others. The question is, what has God given me, and what is God able to do with what he has given me? And the truth is, we would say, well, God is does the impossible, but many people have problems with this because they have a poor self-image. Uh, they have uh, a poor uh, image of what they're capable of doing. They have lots of fear that They're afraid fail that they're what people are going to say a criticism and so a lot of that negative thinking is the result of their attitudes that have no real scriptural basis whatsoever god wants the best will provide the best all he's looking for is submission to his will and let him decide what he wants to do with us
0: And, you know, so much of this comes back down to, I think, one of the central points when we talked earlier about a clean heart, clear mind, and a balanced schedule. That that word balance is so key to this. Uh, Speaking to Jim Dobson uh, on the occasion of his retirement from full-time ministry and looking back over the course of 30 years of ministry with focus on the family, and of course, the big question, could you ever have imagined in the 1970s when you began with one little radio station down in Southern California that this ministry would ever grow to the level and potential that it has to become now this international outreach. And of course, the response, if I had known what this would have grown to, I would have been scared to death and too afraid to start it. I think sometimes we need to realize that it's good if we have a sense that we aren't fully capable, that we can't do it in and all of ourselves, because if we felt otherwise, then there would be in many levels no sense or no need for God. Absolutely. And I
1: think the spirit the spirit of of inadequacy that is based on a true, genuine understanding of who God is and His holiness is always healthy. And once we step out of line with that sense of personal inadequacy... Pride, arrogance, and everything else gets in the way, and we're not going to be able to be used by God. He's not going to use arrogance.
0: Dr. Charles Stanley, my guest on this edition of Lifeline. Reach your full potential for God. Never settle for less than his best. Published by Thomas Nelson. We'll take a brief time out when we come back learning how to move beyond the settled-for life as our conversation with Dr. Charles Stanley continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. And welcome back to Lifeline, our conversation with Pastor Charles Stanley, host of In Touch Ministries. Of course, the program comes your way each weekday afternoon at 4 p.m. here on KFAX, and more information on the web at intouch.org. And it's interesting, Pastor Stanley, I think for so many of us, as we go through certain high water marks in life, and this might be times of uh, perhaps a marriage or a divorce or death of a spouse, a loss of a job or retiring or even becoming a new parent, uh, these times and occasions when we struggle with the question of what does God want from us? What does he want of us? How can we reach our full potential? And then sometimes I think, unfortunately, we get, we get discouraged, we get bogged down by the challenges and obstacles of life, and we end up settling for less than his very best. How can we, how can we move past that settled-for kind of life?
1: What we have to do, one of the first things is this, and that is to recognize who we are from God's perspective. We are one of his children, created in his image to bring him glory and honor. And he has promised that he will be with us, enable us, encourage us, provide for us, no matter what, in every circumstance. And when I think about how many people can quote Romans eight twenty eight, that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him, to those who call to go into his purpose, oftentimes people will quote that, but they don't believe it about themselves. Mm. And they are willing to settle for far less because, uh, for a number of reasons, sometimes, as we said, they're fear of failure, sometimes they're just lazy. They're not willing to pay the price. They're not willing to submit themselves to the Lord's way and His will in their life. And so they settle for less than that. Then they become very angry oftentimes or very discouraged and, and always want to blame it on somebody else. We have to take responsibility for our life and recognize that God is very involved in our life and that whatever our needs are, He will supply if we submit to His will and do it His way.
0: I would imagine one of the big um, big obstacles to achieving that sense of, of full potential and enjoying that, that inner drive and that enthusiasm for life and, and what you do in and through the Lord is the roadblock of being unwilling to surrender fully to Him, would you think?
1: Absolutely. I do believe that that is the major issue. And that one willingness to surrender is either selfishness from our part, we want our way, or fear of what God may require of us, and oftentimes people will head in that direction and then just begin to doubt, and they give up and just say, well, I can't do it, or who am I? As we said a few moments ago, what can I do? What has God done for me? And every person has gifts. Every person has talents and abilities. Some people are willing to employ them and take the risk of failure or criticism and some people are just not willing to do
0: it. We talked a moment ago about some of those important life junctures, uh, and I think perhaps there are some of those high watermark points in life when it's it's always healthy to um, sort of take account of where we're at, not only in our relationship with Christ, our relationship with our children, our spouse, and to make sure that we're indeed on track for for the plan that He has for us. You know, we're told in Scripture that that He's begun a good work in us, that He will complete that through our days. But I I think it's important, perhaps, as we hit some of those important timelines in life, whether we're we're beginning out in a new marriage, maybe we've just gone through a pain of divorce, through no fault of our own, and now we're struggling with that, maybe. we've lost a spouse. Is it important, Pastor Stanley, at those moments to sit down and kind of take a fresh account of not only where we're at in our relationship with him, but also to not only make sure we're on track for what he wants for us and wants to do through us, but also maybe to ask the question, maybe God wants to take us in a, a different direction with new goals at those junctures? I think
1: you're absolutely correct. And because there are situations and circumstances where we have to make changes, we have to make changes about the way we think. Changes about our schedule, changes, for example, about what we think is His will and purpose and plan for our life. And those times are very, very important because so often a person's life takes a turn uh, for the good or maybe not for the good as a result of maybe just ignoring the seriousness of the situation and leaving God out, making decisions on the basis of what seems to be right or wrong or what's the easiest way out. Very important, not only in critical junctures like that, but the truth is every day when we awaken in the morning, we ought to be saying, now, Lord, show me your will for my life today. Make me sensitive about the people I meet. Help me to be perceptive about the things that are going on around me. And show me your will for this day step by step. And when we're willing to do that, he's there. He's there to enable us, no matter what we're going through.
0: And then finally, I'm wondering, Pastor Stanley, about measurement of performance. You know, many of us in the workplace, uh, we will have semi-annual or annual meetings with our immediate supervisor who will take a look at things like uh, our attendance record, how we interact with fellow employees, deal with customers and clients, and things of this sort, and then help evaluate us, and we'll note the areas where we are excelling or or achieving our goals and outstanding performance, uh, areas where maybe we're just satisfactory, other areas where perhaps our performance is unsatisfactory. How do we go about ascertaining whether or not we're really hitting the mark when it comes to serving God and achieving the goals and plans that He has for our life? I think so often, many of us will try to compare where we're at against other people and say, well, gee, you know, I'm, I'm just a pastor of a small church and I only have 75 members in my congregation, so God must be dissatisfied with me because, gee, the pastor up the block has got 800 members. How do we go about ascertaining whether or not we're actually on track for what God's will is for our life.
1: First of all, is my heart clean? Am I thinking scripture? Am I thinking clearly? What about my schedule? What, how am I spending my time? And Am I using it wisely or am I wasting time? What about my relationships? How very important they are in my life. And as a person goes down each one of these, uh, it gives them a time to think through where they are in life. And I think this has to happen many, many times in life, not just at the critical junctures, but I can think in my own life, oftentimes, right before God has uh, given me some instruction about something uh, that to make a change, that's, I, I would have this feeling, I just need to give some time to the Lord and get in His Word and be quiet mm-hmm. and say, Lord, I want you to examine my heart. I want you to show me if there's some area here that you want to change. And if there is an area of change, and most of the time there is something going on, then he's going to show us what it is, and he's not going to show us judgmentally, but he's going to show us to encourage us and to remind us that the change that needs to take place he will enable us to do it. In that way, we keep progressing in life no matter what.
0: And, and it strikes me that it takes us back full circle to one of those key points that you talked about in the beginning of our conversation, uh, this sense of a clean heart, a clean mind, a balanced schedule, and the willingness to surrender. You know, sometimes we'll go before the Lord at one of these critical junctures, or just when it's time to to sort of refresh and renew and and check in with God, so to speak, to make sure that we're on track. The willingness to say, Lord, I'm going to surrender to you, and I'm going to seek your face and your answers for where I'm headed next. And I might have some thoughts and desires in my own heart to understand that I need to surrender even that. And sometimes if we, if we say before the Lord, gee, God, will you do this for me or take me in this direction, that if God gives you a no answer, that that's still an answer.
1: That's exactly right, because His no answers, our answers are answers for our protection and for our guidance, and for our good. those are not always bad.
0: Again, reach your full potential for God, never settle for less than his best, by Thomas Nelson. And the book, again, available at bookstores. In Touch with Pastor Charles Stanley each weekday afternoon at 4 p.m. here on KFAX. And more information about both the book and Pastor Stanley's ministry on the web at intouch.org. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Tolerance. It's a term bantied about with great abandon these days, especially by those on the left, liberals who wish for freedom of expression and understanding for all peoples of all persuasions, hawking all agendas, Uh, with the sole caveat that tolerance is tossed unceremoniously out the window when it comes to those deemed by the so-called tolerant left to be intolerant. And by intolerant, they mean pretty much anyone who doesn't tout their party line or embrace their body politic. A new book out that gives us the inside story to this issue of an attempt by the liberal left to silence everyone else. The book is called The Silencing, How the Left is Killing Free Speech. Its author, well-known political pundit, news analyst, USA Today columnist and Fox News contributor Kirsten Powers. Kirsten, let's talk a bit about this attack on free speech coming from kind of an unusual end of the political spectrum. I mean, aren't these the same people, the students of yesterday and the teachers of today that began the free speech movement on the Berkeley campus in the 1960s?
2: Yes, exactly. And I, I call the people in the book the liberal left to distinguish them from what I consider just the average Democrat or even your average principal liberal who still really holds firm to those ideas of tolerance and diversity and free speech that you were just referring to. Uh, And and that's what makes I think what they're doing that much more troubling is because on the one hand they still claim to value these things while at the same time they are using all sorts of different tactics to silence the debates, to say certain things, you know, certain debates are over, that we aren't allowed to talk about certain things anymore, and if you do talk about them, you will be labeled with some toxic moniker that's, you know, going to make you radioactive, basically, to the rest of society.
0: And, and how do they live with themselves, in the sense, and, and, and you've had a chance to deal with both ends of the political spectrum, both as a reporter and a news analyst. There's this sense, I think, that some of them are out there promoting the same kind of stereotypes that they themselves purport to hate. Right. Well, I think
2: that they are able to do it because they really do believe that what they're doing is a righteous act. They, they believe that they have the capital T Truth, that they know what is right and that there really is nothing to debate and so that they don't they they don't feel that there is a need to for example treat somebody who opposes same-sex marriage as anything other than a homophobe or a bigot and and so you know even though I I do support same-sex marriage I I recognize that there are people who don't that are people of goodwill and that you know and then the best way to engage people is to persuasion, uh you know, rather than coercion, rather than trying to silence them. And the illiberal left doesn't see it that way. They really do believe that the righteous act is to just really sort of isolate that person from society by saying, no, you know, you're, you're a homophobe and, uh, you know, we don't, we don't even need to talk to
0: you about it. Yeah, the irony is if they believe so strongly in their position, you would think that the notion of civility and honesty in public discourse in the end would allow the, the quote unquote truth to win out. But yet they don't apparently see it that way. And I have to wonder if there is almost a sense of, of compartmentalizing going on here. You, you resided inside of the Clinton administration as a Clinton appointee from 92 to 98. From that kind of uh, viewpoint, from the kind of, the the inside looking out. Is there a lot of compartmentalization that goes on?
2: I don't. I. I don't think that they really feel a need to compartmentalize because, like I said, they really do believe that they believe so strongly in what they're doing that they they feel like that they're on the right so called right side of history or the you know the right side of the issue and and so that they you know there's, I, there's a, this example this just happened last month of a uh, uh, Christina Hot summer who's She's an AEI scholar and she came, she went to Georgetown and Overland University in the same month to speak on what she calls equity feminism. It's her version of feminism, which is different from liberal feminism. And, you know, she was treated almost like a terrorist coming to campus. It was, you know, people, you know she had to have security and they had people there holding signs of their trigger warnings. So they were being triggered, you know, that this is going to cause them some sort of emotional distress and danger and there were signs for a safe room where you could go and and be safe while she's you know on campus talking to the campus republicans about her her vision of feminism and just treating treating differing ideas as actually dangerous you know that that's i think that that is what is it takes it away from just your basic intolerance of uh, i can't hear this that it's actually posing a danger and need, and and they try to get the speeches canceled and if they can't get the speeches canceled then they try to they're very disruptive um, or they try to delegitimize the speaker by making them seem like they're saying these horrific things when all they're doing is expressing a different opinion.
0: And the irony is that seems to be kind of the, out of the arsenal of, uh, of tools that they utilize seems to be some of the more popular approaches, stigmatization, uh, delegitimizing, as you're saying, sometimes even going as far as, as dehumanizing. Uh, many of your colleagues, some of which um, as, as commentators that appear on other networks, I won't mention MSNBC, uh, make much game of this sport of dehumanizing those that have differing opinions.
2: Yeah. I mean, dehumanizing is a tactic you see in particular towards uh, conservative women or uh, non-white conservatives. So it's basically trying to turn them into, you know, non meaning You don't even need to take them seriously. And with, with conservative women, they will do it through, you know, she's not really a woman. They don't speak for women. The only women who speak for women are pro-choice Democrats, um, that they are, you know, bush in a skirt. Uh, they're sort of these, you know, female impersonators, these are some of the the words that have been used to describe uh, conservative women, or they objectify them, which is another form of dehumanization, which actually what is so noxious about this is that it's feminists who have came up with this theory that dehumanizing, objectifying women is dehumanizing, and it's actually very effective. It's a very effective way to, to make people not take a woman seriously. So if you focus obsessively on her body or her looks or what she's wearing, as they did with, for example, Sarah Palin, and turn her into a sex object, then voters start to you know, not see this person any longer as even a potentially serious person. They just see them as a sex object. And so these are the kind of tactics that they use, even though they say – they stand
0: for women. But what I don't understand is, and maybe you can shed some light on this, why do mainstream liberals. Give give sort of a get-out-of-jail-free card to some of these commentators and, and so-called news reporters who, who use this kind of language. For example, you mentioned about uh, references to people like uh, either Sarah Palin or uh, Michelle Bachman as, as bimbos. I think at one time, didn't Ed Schultz even use that yeah. demeaning term uh, directed toward you? And, and, and mm-hmm. when it's done, the liberal left seems to look the other way. But can you imagine anyone on Fox News making a reference to, say, Hillary Clinton as the um, Democrat candidate bimbo yes. and getting away with it?
2: No, of course not. I mean, there's a double standard. And at, at some they have started to be shamed by it, and so they have some groups have started to recognize that they have to condemn uh, condemn this when it's happening to conservative women. Now, they always kind of do it in this grudging way, you know, like, oh, yeah, I guess we have to You know, we have to stand up for this, but you know they're not. But but for a long time they didn't, and a lot of them were participants in it. That's the thing. That a lot of the people who were making the misogynist attacks against Sarah Palin were self-described feminists. So you know, it's and so it's it's sometimes it's them, and then other times it's sitting by, you know, while Keith Olbermann while he was you know, sitting atop his perch at M S N B C is doing it, whether it's Chris Matthews that is doing it. Uh they you know, they just sit there and they, they don't they they just either ignore it or they um, you know, maybe will find something to complain about now and then, but it doesn't cause the full scale hysteria that you see like what you saw what happened when when Rush Limbaugh had, you know had uh called Sandra Fluck, you know, a slut, which he he apologized – well, actually, I don't know if he apologized, but he was treated as if he had to, uh, you know, lose his show over that, right? You know, and this is one incident versus continuous incidents of liberal men that are completely ignored.
0: What's ironic about this is just how insidious and widespread all this is. As you delineate inside the pages of the silencing, we we, we find this approach to, um, again, just the, 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 the closing down of civil dialogue. The stigmatization, dehumanization of the opposition, so to speak, that occurs not only on college campuses, as we referred to a moment ago, it's taking place uh, certainly within uh, politics, within the, the the Democrat Party. We see it taking place in in the news arena. It's almost as if there's there's no free um, antagonizing zone where actual discourse and exchange of, of ideas can take place anymore, without fearful of of suddenly coming under attack. Or having even your very legitimacy being questioned.
2: Right, I think mean, that's exactly right. Um, yeah, and I just did want to clarify that I just checked that Rush Limbaugh did apologize to her, which is like one extra step that we don't often see by the, uh, the men uh, you know on the left who just are doing this with in- impunity and are never are never criticized. So you know, I do think that um, the delegitimizing that's going on, which I get into in the in the book so much, is just is such an effective tactic to. Uh, to avoid debate, uh, to, 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 not have to, you know, somebody said something and you don't have to engage them on what they actually said. Uh, instead you can just pick out something about them that other people are not going to like. Other people do not want to listen to somebody who, they've, who they've been convinced is a racist. They do not want to listen to somebody who they've convinced, have been convinced of is an, is an Islamophobe or, you know, or a race denier as they call the people who question the campus rape. Statistics, and it's just kind of, they're either conversation enders, not conversation starters. It's not encouraging robust debate, uh, and, and which is really how we get knowledge in society. Uh, instead it's encouraging really us just accepting what a certain group of people have decided is the truth and we're not supposed
0: to question it. Kirsten Powers, our guest today on this edition of Lifeline, we're talking about her new book called The Silencing, How the Left is Killing Free Speech. The new book, by the way, just released by Regnery Press, available at Bay Area bookstores as well as through Amazon.com. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of our conversation with Kirsten Powers as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to Lifeline. Our special guest today, well, you certainly know her as a political pundit, news analyst, USA Today columnist, and Fox News contributor, and now a new book called The Silencing. We're visiting today with Kirsten Powers. Kirsten, you relay an example of how insidious all of this is taking place on college campuses in terms of almost uh, sort of grooming students into this sense of of intolerance Uh, by talking about um, Lafayette College and, and their so called bias response team. Uh, share this example with listeners from the book, if you would, and then give us a sense of just how widespread is this mentality across campuses in America today.
2: Well, th- these kinds of things are starting to crop up, and I expect them to probably spread, which is the idea that, you know, if you, something on campus happens that you feel was somehow offensive, you know, some sort of bias, whether it's a racial bias or, you know, gender bias or something, that you can report people for it, Uh, and that it's treated as if it's uh, almost like a bodily harm that has occurred to you. And this is something that comes up throughout the the book in in various stories, which was particularly alarming to me, which was that, you know, taking offense or even just disagreement or having to see something or hear something that you don't like is really often described as a violent event. That, that, the, the, that's the, the language that's used. I, I talk about the professor at the University of California, Santa Barbara, who physically attacked a pro-life student uh, who was part of a peaceful demonstration and told the police officer when she was arrested that she was quote-unquote triggered, which is a word that comes up throughout the book, uh, that, that she was triggered by having to encounter this peaceful demonstration, that she shouldn't have to see something like this, that it's, it, you know, this is supposed to be her safe space. This is a professor um, you know who doesn't want to have to encounter a view that she doesn't like and that and treats it just the expression of the view as an attack and so this is the mentality that we have that is spreading which is which is that you know in that case that's an outlier usually it doesn't involve somebody physically attacking somebody the response but there, there are other ways that the person is then silenced because you know they say well I just like I can't you know I just it, it was i can't i can't see that i
0: can't hear that i can't it's, it's, you know the crazy. irony is that you when you breakdown. when you put this in context for those of us that are old enough to remember a, a lot of the new liberalism today, whether it be on college campuses or in the mainstream media, sounds like a lot of the old McCarthyism of the 1950s
2: yes yeah very similar and it's there's yeah there's an aspect of who you talk to also uh is is indicative of of who you are versus what you say or what you think, and I experienced this actually when my book came out. When uh, I gave excerpts of the book to various publications, including the Daily Beast, which I write for and is considered a, a, you know left of center, but also to a publication at the Heritage Foundation, which is conservative. And because of that, I had all these, liberal lefties coming after me, saying that I you know because I had allowed the Heritage Foundation to run an excerpt that I, you know, that, that just proved that I was a right-wing hack and my book was somehow backed by the Heritage Foundation. Some, you suddenly I mean?
0: you're a shill, shill for the left, or for the right, right rather. Yeah,
2: <laughs> I mean, but, but never mind that, like, I ran excerpts in the Daily Beast. You know what I mean? It doesn't, it's just, they, they just look for some kind of relationship that they can use to prove that you're a secret, you know, closet conservative. I have a bunch of examples in the book of how they really use this against journalists. To scare journalists to, into uh, not pursuing stories because they will be accused of being closet conservatives because they are investigating the Obama administration or they're investigating Republicans. But if they investigate, uh, you know, the, the right the the right people, then uh, then they're gonna if they, if they investigate Republicans, they're gonna be fine. But if they investigate Democrats, they're not. So you'll have people like Cheryl Agneson, who award-winning investigations of both parties. But all you'll hear about from the Liberal Left is how she investigated the Obama administration and therefore she's this she's literally this partisan, uh, you know, conservative hack.
0: You know, the irony is this agenda, though, just bubbles so so, so uh, close to the surface, it's, it's unbelievable. I mean, for example, uh, Chris Hayes recently did what he called a Hillary Clinton study guide for millennials, where he touted all the wonderful things that she apparently had done before most of them, quite frankly, had ever even been born. And yet, can you imagine if, say, Fox News attempted to do a, a new millennials guide to Ben Carson? What, what, what kind of response you would see from the left? Right. Well,
2: that's totally standard. I mean, you can't. There, you know, there's this idea that uh, you know they spent all this time. I have a whole chapter on it, trying to be Fox News, uh, the White House did, saying you know they're not a real news organization, and uh, and and telling other news organizations that they shouldn't treat them as real news organizations. And meanwhile, MSNBC is doing this times a million you know and and i'm not i actually i think MSNBC is free to do that i don't and if and if the, and if george bush had ever come out and said they weren't legitimate i would have been the first person to defend them you know i don't i think that they they're they're, they're free to you know have, have whatever kind of program they want to have and uh and i and i don't think that that means that you know if Chris Hayes does something on one show that uh, you know, a reporter or a host from another show is somehow held accountable for that, right? I mean, like the same way, like they try to merge everything at Fox together. It's like, well, because there's Sean Hannity, then that means that Brett Baer can't be trusted. Well, those two things have nothing to do with each other. You know, they're completely different shows. and um, And one is an expressly an opinion show. And so, yeah, there's an an absolute double standard where you had Obama administration officials leaving and going to work for MSNBC after the same people who said that Fox was not a legitimate news organization.
0: Help us understand something here. Uh, how much of this, in your opinion, is is just based on that sense of unfamiliarity breeding contempt? In other words, that it's easy to either dislike or hate what you don't know or don't understand. So many people, particularly for the the, the political world inside the Beltway, don't have an opportunity to really get to know "quote unquote" the enemy or the other side. And so, as a result, because of that that sense of ignorance, we'll call it uh, that 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 they Sort of have this 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 deepening, abiding sense of acrimony shown toward those who don't share the same opinion.
2: Yeah, yeah, I think that there's I, I, there's definitely an element of that. It's very hard to sustain these the, the these ideas. For example, that every single person who opposes same-sex marriage is a homophobe. If you actually have friends or people that you're opposed to who have sincere religious beliefs, that lead them to oppose same-sex marriage and and you can see you know that they they aren't homophobes i'm not saying that the person's never a homophobe but i'm just just saying that that's you know that that at least in my experience the people that i know that that's not what's driving them what's driving them is a religious belief so i do think there is that um but i I don't the the problem with the liberal left is they really aren't interested in, in knowing people who are different than them and they because they are so convinced that they are right, that they it just does not seem to have occurred to them that, uh, that they could be wrong. But, you know, I used to be pretty closed minded and I was definitely, you know, I'd worked in the Clinton administration, Democratic politics, very liberal family, and, uh, I had a lot of these, these ideas as well that I had it all figured out. And basically working at Fox News and, and then later in life, conversion to Christianity where I started. Being around, obviously, a lot of Christians and more conservatives, I, you know, it did slowly break down my, my prejudices, frankly. I mean, they were prejudices, uh, where I, could, you know, I didn't necessarily change my political views, but I was able to see, oh, you know, there is a debate to be had here. Uh, there are things to talk about, and, and these are legitimate views. They're just different than mine.
0: So at the end of the day, while it's it's often kind of surprising to see how closed-minded so many so-called open-minded liberals really are, there is hope. And, 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 and I think sometimes the opportunity to the degree to which it's possible – and I'm just thinking about people that are engaged in the day-to-day business of going about uh, their affairs – to engage with people mm-hmm. in a loving, legitimate, intellectual fashion – Concerning the issues of the day, not with heated exchange and raised voices, but just, just an, an open-minded exchange of ideas can sometimes eventually bring people around to another point of view.
2: I think so, yeah. It's, it's often slow, so I think people get discouraged. Uh, you know, I think it's not it's not like you're going to meet somebody one time and that's going to happen. But I do think over time and I've had a lot of friends tell me that, it's you know, knowing me also has changed their views on some things or even, you know, they have their their ideas about what a liberal is like or what a liberal thinks. And, and you know, and so I think, you know, it's been beneficial in both directions.
0: Well, the book certainly is very engaging in helping us to not only better understand what's taking place here, the dynamic between the two sides, so to speak, but also, I think, uh, uh, gives us a sense of hope that we can engage in some dialogue and eventually see some change. Kristen Powers, the book is called The Silencing, How the Left is Killing Free Speech. The book published by Regnery Press, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as through Amazon.com. And, of course, Regnery Press, a part of the company that owns this fine radio station.